That day, my story was that my eggs would not be viable to make a baby. No matter how intense my desire for these things, they would not be mine. Lucky for me, it was Christmas, the day when hope flows from dark places, the only source it knows. Welcome to Daring to Tell, the podcast where writers read their own true stories of personal daring. I am Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. The opening of the song, So This Is Christmas, by John Lennon and Yoko Ono was in my head this morning when I woke up. Yes, it's December again. Christmas is bearing down on us pretty much my least favorite time of year. The song continues on with John asking us, and what have you done? Well, I'll tell you. Recently, I've found and spoken with Janine Bergdorf, who is also, it just so happens, a Beatles fan, I discovered. She has written a personal essay for us about Christmas, but not your typical Christmas story, which is one of many reasons why I liked it so much. And it's a story that also takes measure of a life, hers, and ways it's passing, which is another thing that we do, either intentionally or sort of by default at this time of year, as one year is over and a new one about to begin to loop back to those opening lines from John and Yoko's song. Janine Bergdorf lives in Chicago, where snow began flying through the air and her radiators started clanging on the day that we spoke. She writes both fiction and nonfiction. Her short stories have appeared in Signal House Edition, New Reader Magazine, and Orange Quarterly. And she's also a storyteller on stage, which is where our conversation began. I've always liked talking in front of people. In fact, the anonymity of it, the putting on a persona of a performance or performer is a little easier than what we're doing right now. Like, this is very intimate. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was going to say, if I, if, you might, if I might say, you sound a tiny bit nervous. <laughs> I am, even I though I know you, you and it's very close. Oh. Going back to, to being on stage, yeah, I had started doing stage work in high school and in college and even some professional work in my 20s. So I've always loved theater and that kind of audience relationship is energizing to me and I really enjoy it. So yeah, it's a very different part of my brain than my writer self. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that kind of leads to my next question because I know you write short stories and and I did know you were had performed on the stage. So I think it's interesting that you were like, you put on a persona, you're in front of people, you're having that energy. But what is the difference between writing fiction for you and writing nonfiction? And I was having this conversation with another writer recently where we were talking about as largely nonfiction writers, I feel like I couldn't make something up. So <laughs> what is that difference between when you're writing fiction versus nonfiction? Or maybe it's kind of the same answer you just said is the performance. I don't know. Um, no, it, it is very different. A short answer would probably be that 
Fiction is so much fun. It is just playtime and world building and creation in a way that the first person work is really healing mm-hmm. and, and using my voice in a way that is vulnerable and is like not veiled. I mean, it's me and I'm telling my version of my story. So those would be the biggest differences. And I feel compelled to do both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the hard work of the, the first person narratives just won't go away. I've always been a, a diary writer. You know, even in my fiction, I use my life experience to grab from and to steal from, um, to investigate into a larger human condition. So I can't escape myself. So <laughs> that's kind of why I do the first person work. And then, yeah, the fiction is just, even when it's hard and even when it's really sad and uh, I have to get really vulnerable to do it, it's so much fun. Right. Well, so why why do you write, period? Like, why write at all? And that is such a good question. I have tried not writing, uh, to be honest. Uh, it's been part of my, I guess, deepening and healing of my relationship with myself. I've tried denying my writer self. I've tried, you know, dismissing her and, and she just won't go away. <laughs> um, you know, so really yeah. it's been, yeah. again, integrating that I have things to say and I have a voice to say them and to neglect that or um, try to keep that in the dark is so painful and so awful that it's much easier to be showing up to the work and showing up to the blank page and showing up to the hard questions yeah yeah I agree it is kind of funny it's like why do we why do we put ourselves through this when it can be so painful sometimes but yeah I like hearing that you have push through even trying to deny your writer self that's thank you that just feels wrong that alone yeah but I, I did it for a long time you know I think you know if, if we start the clock at, at third grade and then you know when you're young and even when you're in school and you have you know some support or encouragement the stakes are still pretty low and then when you get out into the world and the judgment is much harsher and the mm. criteria is based on other people's egos or other people's jealousies it you know it moves around it's, right. it doesn't stay in the place it once was which is my love of story so it was actually many periods of block or periods of like not writing that um that i had to go through to really get to this point of embracing that I love writing and that there's no shame in that and that even though the world sometimes seems to be full of writers like it's also full of readers and listeners and so right it's not a an end game where there's like yeah a zero sum and then that's the end of it it's constantly renewing and growing I like that so with that I will introduce Janine Bergdorf reading this too shall pass My mother died in 2008, and every Christmas day since, I have visited her grave in Cincinnati to tell her about the year I had. In 2019, I was in town for just that one day. I had to drive back to Chicago to go to work. The morning was unseasonably warm, and at the cemetery, rows of gravestones were decorated with wreaths, poinsettias, red ribbons, and plastic Santas. My mother loved Christmas. She never explained what about that day meant so much to her, 
but I think she loved that she had permission to play and be childlike, to believe she deserved gifts and treats, all the things that were not the case the other days of the year. But on Christmas Day, she'd sing rocking around the Christmas tree in the kitchen, wearing a tacky snowman sweater and a battery-operated light-up tree brooch. She made me love Christmas, too. It was the one day we could be a version of ourselves that expressed our glee at unwrapping gifts and singing silly songs. The rest of the year, she kept her feelings to herself, not showing laughter or tears. The only indication she was going through dark days was that she would say, This too shall pass. I'd know she was hurting even though she didn't say anything more. In 2019, I was hurting, and I wanted to talk to her about it. For the first time, I was ready to give up wanting to have a child. I had been trying with my now ex-husband, my doctors, myself. I had been trying to have a period, to ovulate, trying to gain weight, trying to lose weight, trying progesterone, trying to produce follicle-stimulating hormone, trying psychotherapy, massage therapy, hydrotherapy, yoga, trying to explain to my doctors what was happening in my body. Trying, trying, trying. All I had succeeded at was crying. I was tired. I wanted to stop crying. I wanted to stop wanting. By the age of 30, three doctors had diagnosed me with polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS, the most common cause of infertility for women in the U.S. That year, we buried my mother, a month before Christmas in 2008. A week later, back in Chicago, I sobbed to my fiancé, How can I have children? How can I put another person through this much pain after I die? Maybe I cursed myself that day. Looking back through my medical history to 2004, when my diagnosis came with no treatment and no cure, I see I was already doomed. The intensity of my feelings as I sobbed at him, after holding myself together in front of my relatives and my mother's friends, was outsized. Grief has a way of amplifying what's in front of you. Everything becomes heavier and darker under its weight. In my 20s, even before I tried to have a baby, I was sick. I got sick at work and my coworkers found me on the floor in pain, having thrown up in my waste paper basket after the rupturing of cysts on my ovaries. I made scar tissue from the exploratory surgeries that would then necessitate more surgeries to remove later on. The scar tissue was making things harder to see on the ultrasounds and the CT scans. By 2010, I was married and started hormones, the first step in upping my fertility, according to my gynecologist. The way she phrased it, I thought of my fertility as a high-striker game at a fair, designed with a spring, so that no one except the game's designated strongman could ring the bell. Up and up, but never hitting the mark. The hormones changed my body, made me anxious and sweaty, but also made my nails long and my skin soft, where I was once rough and red. Nothing increased my follicle-stimulating hormone, the thing I needed to release healthy eggs, the bell I needed to strike in order to win. I have resisted becoming my mother, especially the way she hid her feelings under a veil of authority. But I hid my feelings anyway, not wanting to burden other people with them, since I didn't know what to do with them myself. Finally, in my 40s, I refused to accept that there are only two choices, be a burden or carry the weight of my feelings on my own. 
I want to believe it's possible to be a mother without becoming my mother. Maybe I don't believe enough. Maybe it's not possible to make a genealogy, to be a link in the chain of history with beliefs. Maybe it was time for our link to close, and who am I to challenge destiny? In 2019, I was still grieving my mother. I didn't miss her every day, but I always missed her on Christmas. After I left the cemetery, I drove to a gas station for some coffee. Holding something hot in my hands is a primal comfort response for me, a way to feel focused when my mind is chaos. After I filled a disposable coffee cup at the self-serve station, I went to the checkout line, which stretched to the entrance of the store. I turned from the cashier and watched people pump gas outside the window. An old man walked up, holding the hand of a little girl, maybe six or seven. Once they got inside, I heard him yell at her in a thick eastern Ohio accent that made it hard for me to understand him. The girl pleaded for another candy bar. Someone, somewhere, had given her that first candy bar, put her hair in braids, cared for her that morning. I imagined she really wanted her mother, but the candy bar was the only offering, left by Santa in her stocking, taped to the radiator cover as my mother had done. I felt a tight heat at the back of my throat. He didn't deserve that girl, to hold her hand on the happiest day of the year. I wanted her, or my version of her, a girl child who could embarrass me in front of strangers with her tantrums. I worried they would see me staring, so I looked down at the thing I was holding, the cup of weak coffee. When I reached the front of the line, I turned to the cashier, who smiled at me from a toothless mouth, and said, Merry Christmas. I thought about paying for whatever the old man and the girl were buying as an act of Christmas charity. I thought better of it. No one wanted my charity. No one wanted to see that I had a credit card that could pay for all the candy bars the girl could eat on Christmas Day and the day after. I felt guilty for what I had and shame for not sharing it. If she were my daughter, I would explain to her the reasons another candy bar was not a good idea. I would share with her why I was withholding, because even though it was Christmas, too much candy any day would make her sick. I'd promise to play with the toys Santa had brought when we got home. I'd hold her entire tiny body, not just her hand, as we danced in the kitchen to rockin' around the Christmas tree. But she is not my daughter. She is from here, and I am, now more than 25 years gone, a stranger. I am not a mother, though the urge to be one has not gone away. Biologically, I still want to give birth to a baby. After spending all of 2019 giving up on my efforts to do so, contemplating a life without a child, I felt all those days culminate as I watched the old man and the little girl talk to the cashier with no teeth. Sitting inside my car, I stared as they walked away from the gas station, and I admitted to myself I also wanted to take. I start by taking my body back first trying to understand the mind-body connection. The mind is hard to define in every source I turn to. My primary care doctor, who is the only man who has ever believed me, books on meditation, the woman who teaches me Reiki, the stranger I share an Uber with, who asks whether she should have a baby with her abusive husband, hoping a child will bring them closer, horoscopes, and tarot too. I write in my journal to find my mind, 
hoping it will emerge from my words. I feel my body change, but cannot attribute those changes to anything I'm learning about my mind. I feel my body wanting for the first time, ready to receive. Sleep, exercise, sex. Where has this body been? Now, at the end of trying, I have a sense this receiving body is temporary, like the hormone-injected body and the hysterical crying body. I feel assurance, for the first time in all my efforts to change, that this version of me will give way to an accepting body, a satisfied body. There is no point in time where my round torso will perch like a question mark above my hips. How long before my wish for it to be true passes? It's been more than a decade since my mother saw my body or felt it in an embrace. She does not know this body. Its cells turned over and over, but she knew some form of it. She made it with her body. In third grade, I started reading stories and books and newspapers in earnest. Stories showed me how to look for things and how to look at things. I started writing them for myself and made a place to grow separate from my mother. There was power in these small acts of independence that needed years, decades, to accumulate before I could tell this story of my dead mother and my unborn child. At the gas station, my hands felt empty even though they held the coffee cup. They ached to hold my mother's hand, now dust. They throbbed for the hand of a future generation, a figment of my imagination, a ghost. I never lived fertile years. I mean, I never lived in a fertile body, yet I am alive. Living does not require that I give life. In spite of this fact, I feel I am the ghost. I have passed on, given my body, a thing I thought I could change, to the past. If my life's lesson is acceptance, I'm still learning it. Accepting that I can never make a child, never do the thing I was absorbed in doing for a third of my life, is a daily practice. Living in my body daily, listening to my needs, requires focused attention. Accepting my body, the body that makes stories, makes me feel more alive than I was ever able to feel in 15 years on hormones and in hospitals. I tried to change into a fertile body, giving it my all, at least all I was willing to give before I realized I could also take. I claim my body, and it is not lacking. I take story with her infinite possibility stretched out before me, beckoning and open. Fill me, she dares. I keep my celebrations at Christmas fixed on renewal. The glow of white string lights on long nights, and new stories I read and tell. On December 25th, 2019, my story was my mother did not listen to me recount the events of my year at her grave. She did not hold my hand to warm it and calm me down. She would never do those things again. That day, my story was that my eggs would not be viable to make a baby. No matter how intense my desire for these things, they would not be mine. Lucky for me, it was Christmas, the day when hope flows from dark places, the only source it knows. Here is my new story, one in which being childless and motherless means that I'm changed by my loss, but I'm also made bigger in the telling of it. And hopefully, you are made brighter 
and the listening to it. While we can't hold hands, connecting our beating hearts, we can hold something that has the potential to change us. We can move forward into that uncertain season, the one not yet written, the one just visible in the late December light. Beautiful, beautiful. So what is the lesson of acceptance? What it, What is that for you right now? Um, I think hopefully it comes in this essay. Um, hopefully I'm not speaking too broadly, but the lesson of acceptance is it's, it's the door that lets you move forward, mm-hmm. right? It's the, the thing that unsticks you yeah. uh, from, from whatever loss or pain or burden you can't seem to get out of. It's not easy. It's not like checking you know, a box or one trick pony kind of thing. It's, it's years and years. I mean, this has been, so it's 2021. It's been two full years since I've been practicing acceptance every day. Um, mm-hmm. And I still have to do it. I mean, it's not, I don't foresee any day in my future life where I won't wake up and forget that I wanted a family and I didn't have one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And what about the mind-body connection after you were no longer being, you know, manipulated by hormones and you are trying to pay attention to your body? Is it a two-way street? Like you were paying attention to your body, but what your mind, what you were learning with your mind wasn't necessarily like showing up there or something? Um, Yeah, the mind-body connection. I don't know. I feel like because this particular situation was so rooted in my body performing and my body demonstrating something that um, I really did have to completely change my relationship to it. You know, all the expectations of, you know, should and must and have to um, that just were not (laughs) met with, um, you don't know who you're dealing with, you know, you can't change some things about yourself. what I hope is I'm expressing or what I maybe am still working on expressing about the mind-body connection is that the truth of my experience is in my relationship to both of those things and they are different relationships. Mm, Right. Because I was thinking of it as, because I found the line where you said, I feel my body change but cannot attribute those changes to anything I am learning about my mind. And it does seem like there are these two somewhat autonomous things, but they're not. (laughs) And that's why I was thinking of it as um, not necessarily a one-way street or a two-way street that I think that we hear a lot about a mind-body connection that sort of is... um, how am I going to describe it? The mind-body connection as what you put in your mind will manifest in your body. And that is not necessarily true. But the, so my question, I guess, that popped up in my head as I was reading this is, is it really only a one-way street? Like our body is going to do the thing it's going to do and our mind, (laughs) we can either tune into what that is and 
reach for that acceptance as you relate to there or not? I don't know if that was kind of where you were going with that. I don't think it's one way. Um, I hope I didn't. I don't think it's one way. I think it is like a constellation and, and because this particular problem is so rooted in my body, so much of my investigation of myself and, you know, was so body focused for so long right. that when, you know, whatever awakening I had to the mind part, even though I've been a practicing meditator for 29 years now, you'd think I'd be more oh, into wow. my mind. Um, but I, yeah, I was not creating space for my mind for a long time. I was really uh-huh. rooted in this is a problem that has solutions and there's science and there's medicine. And then when those started to not have, you know, anything useful, then there's energy healing and then there's massage therapy and then there's mm-hmm. the whole list of things I go into the essay. But, um, a very dynamic, ever-changing thing that is, you know, my life, my experience. So I, I like that you reference a constellation too, because, you know, this is also about Christmas and you reference the lights made brighter in telling and sharing of stories. Um, and I guess I'm also a little curious, like, what is Christmas like for you now? Um, it is what uh, I reference at the end uh, really is just about lights. Um, one of my favorite things about winter in general is opportunity for solace. So for going inward and for finding that place in all of us to rest. It is a period of, of rest I mentioned renewal with the lights, and that's certainly a part of our culture, but winter in general really is, you know, the renewal will come in the spring, but right now is the time for solace and examination and not being so so vigorous and ambitious as we are the other seasons of the year. Um, so I think that natural, you know, is grounded, again, in the cultural things of Christmas, and then, you know, I was raised Catholic, so... The religious things of Christmas as well, but really winter and winter holidays are more about natural elements and natural changes that are happening that I want to take a part of because I feel like the the culture and religion don't build enough of that in for us to mm-hmm. be aligned with nature and um, right. I think Mother Nature is a lot smarter than us, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I feel like that's also a message of acceptance and just tuning into what our surroundings are and Mother Nature as a body as well as our own bodies, Mm -hmm. almost even. Yes. So what felt most daring in writing this piece? Um, What felt most daring? Oh, what felt most daring? Um, Yeah, I think the, the vulnerability of... You know, and I still encounter this on a pretty regular basis, you know, being a woman in her 40s who's single and who doesn't have a family and who nobody wants to hear the reason why I don't have a family. Um, Mm. It's just uh, easier to, I don't know, um, make me invisible or, you know, Mm. it's, it's too complex a question to ask so 
Mm-hmm. You know, people just either automatically like have judgment or, you know, they feel right. um, sorry for me, mm-hmm. uh, you know, without really knowing too much about me or my situation. So I feel like just really owning that, owning my contribution to my fertility journey that, you know, was right work. Um, yeah. And the, the thing that was daring to tell in the story was really the owning of how disappointed I was in myself mm-hmm. for a long time at not being able to um, have a baby mm-hmm. and really believing without, you know, you're the only person I've talked to about this, mm-hmm. but believing somewhere out there, there are women who are also going through this and need to know they're not alone. Yeah. And um, and I've definitely talked to a lot of women who've lost their mothers. And I always feel those conversations are healing, that, you know, being part of the dead mom club is something you don't ever outgrow, you never mm-hmm. get kicked out of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there are always lots of people to join you there. So talking about yeah. that also was going to be more healing than just me keeping my story to myself Mm. or me trying to figure it out as I did you know for a long long time I that mind body connection it was like if I can't solve my body I can solve my thinking about it um no really the answer to the healing is in telling the stories yeah yeah I I know I think that those are really very vulnerable observations and can be such hard places to get to that I agree we by putting it putting the words down as you say you sort of get at what the feelings are in the act of doing it and creating and and I do hope that the sharing of the story is something that finds comfort in the ear of the listener there's so many stories about how and why people suffer and it's only in the vulnerability of sharing them that the universality comes out. I was listening to another story today about it's it's the details. It's in the details of what all these specific situations are that the universality comes. I don't know why that is. It's sort of a, a paradox you know, it's, it's sort of this opposite thing. But when we go into the details of it, that's where it connects with someone else. So, um, so thank you for finding the courage to write it and to share it. Was there anything about reading it out loud that also felt daring? Well, um, I'll circle back to what we were talking about earlier, that being in this interface of podcast and only talking to you is incredibly intimate and Mm -hmm. feels much, much harder than maybe it's the dynamics of being on a stage where, you know, six feet above people who are sitting there, they're usually drinking. So, you know, they're a little Mm -hmm. more relaxed. They're maybe only half listening. I don't know something about the, the anonymity or the, the dynamics of talking on stage don't feel as revealing as what we've been doing here. It's very so I funny. feel like the whole thing yeah. has just been a very different experience. You know, again, even though you've read this story and we've had conversations about this, these things, I don't know. Maybe it's the 
the headphones because I, I always feel very insular when I'm wearing headphones too. Oh, it's like okay. I'm in my I'm in my bubble now. Nobody can get me. But yeah. oh no, Michelle's there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thank you again for sharing. And I do think it's funny because I am like so entirely the opposite. <laughs> I can sit in front of a mic and listen to my headphones and I just sit here and I feel like, oh, I'm by myself and it's very calm and quiet. And, you know, yes, it is. You're vulnerable. You're you're sharing things that are your own ideas. But the idea of being on a stage in front of people, I would be beside myself. Nope. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that uh, hardest, uh, to go back to your question, if you want to, uh, another perspective on that, the hardest part continues to be, you know, even though I have in isolation been writing stories for 30 plus years now, there's always daring that's required to share them with the world. Yeah. You know, I do often think about the, the two sides of me, you know, that wants to be seen in this way as a performer but then you know what does it mean to be seen as a writer because it's just words right like so where is the writer in the writing it's a question I ask myself a lot mm. and something like this that is first person and based on my real life experience I feel like you, you can't escape who <laughs> Janine mm. is here and that's that requires a lot of daring very very yeah. daring so yeah. well I will say thank you again for daring and uh, hopefully, again, our world is made brighter in the telling of it. Thank you, Michelle. Is there any way that anything you want to talk about if people are curious to read more of your stories? Where can they read your stuff? Absolutely. Yes, please follow me on Instagram and Twitter at having fun wrong. It's all one word, having fun wrong. And also I have a newsletter on books and they're not always contemporary novels and short stories. I have a particular fondness for modernism in general, so I tie a lot of my essays on books related to the continuation of a modern aesthetic or modern idea of what novels are. And you can find me at substack.janinebergdorf. Thank you again, Janine. It was great talking with you. Thank you, Michelle. I just want to thank Janine again for sharing such an intimate piece today and um, for putting herself in such a vulnerable place to share something so personal. It takes a lot to do that, but I do hope that by sharing it, it's made your world a little bigger somehow. Next month, we will hear from Caroline Fitzgerald. You might not know her name, but she has an interesting distinction in that her life and character are the inspiration for the mother of Rainbow on the TV series Blackish and Mixedish. So her daughter is the real Rainbow. Pretty cool. She will read a chapter from her not-yet-published memoir called I Think I Might Die Without You, so look for that episode coming out in January. If you are enjoying Daring to Tell, please dare to tell a friend about it. You can also either follow me on Twitter, at Michelle Rado, or if you want to send a comment or thought about any episode, you can email me, michelle at michellerado.com. 
Until next time, thank you so much for daring to listen. Nothing's gonna break my fall There's nothing in the protocol It's like swimming up waterfall Or taking away the ground Taking away the ground It's like taking away the ground